0: god has uh, been uh, to Lebanon and he's uh, preached for me. He's preached in English and I translated into Arabic. He never returns the favor. Uh, never, ever. Uh, I say, I'll preach in Arabic, you translate, you never accept that. Um, in any case, I'm so happy to be here today and um, it's a privilege to be invited to preach and to share the word of God with you. Um, it um, reminds me today of one of the things that uh, happened to me when I was at Dallas Seminary um, my professor of uh, Hebrew language was going to be out of town, and I was TAing uh, for him um, uh, while I was a PhD student down there. And uh, so he asked me to fill in for him and teach one of the classes of the Hebrew language at, uh, for the master's students, which I accepted. I considered to be, uh, that to be a, a great privilege and a great opportunity for me, so I did. Um, and he was supposed to be flying uh, out um, um, somewhere to speak... The teacher, I can't remember what was his engagement. In any case, um, his plane got canceled, his flight got canceled, and uh, while I was up there in front of the classroom, the first five minutes of the class, he showed up, and he sat at the back of the class. I just about fainted that day, (laughs) and I feel the same today, Sammy being here, Pastor Sammy being here, um, um, preaching in front of him, I'm his student. And he's sitting here. So I told Scott, "Do you have a plan B backup in case I faint this morning?" He said, "Don't worry, we have, we got you covered." So I'm uh, encouraged to go on. I want to read with you uh, a passage from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter six. Very familiar passage. Many songs have been written on this passage and similar ones. Um, but um, it's one of those passages that in uh, And in my view and the way I look at the book of Isaiah, I think it impacted the whole ministry and the whole prophecy and the whole uh, language and and the way um, the the whole book is written. Isaiah has been so deeply moved and impacted by this vision, uh, determined who he is and how he does ministry and how he worshiped God and how he served him. Um, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongues. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what we read this morning. We thank you for this glimpse of your holiness. We pray as we delve into it and as we learn from it that your world will be implanted into our hearts to bring forth its fruit. We pray that you'd give us submissive hearts and wills so that we will be not just listening and enjoying and learning but will be transformed through it Help us, Lord, to understand. Help us to see. Help us, Lord, to live in according to what we hear this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In summer 2010, I was in London. For two months, I was working on my dissertation, doing some research at the School of Oriental and African Studies. And towards the end of my stay, I have a friend uh, who lives in Bracknell, west of London. Uh, he invited me to go and uh, spend the last uh, few days with him and his family. And so I did. Uh, I did. And uh, when I reached there, it was on a weekend, and uh, there was going to be a huge sale at one of the local malls of Bracknell. That's well, probably the only one. It's a small town. So he said, we have to go shopping. I said, I don't, I'm not interested in any shopping. He said, no, 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 but you have to come. You might find good deals. This is a good big sale that we're having once a year. So I said, okay, so we went, and uh, as we were walking throughout the mall, we went into the department sp- store Marks & Spencer, uh, and um, we, uh, I, I kept on going straight to the clearance section because that's what we're doing. We're hunting for some of those deals. And uh, when we got there, I found a blazer a jacket uh, that was uh, retail price for 120 pounds, but they were selling it for 12 pounds. I tried it right away, and it fit in. It's good. So I grabbed it, and I hand- hauled on to it. And then uh, I looked through the uh, rack of uh, slacks, pants that they have, and uh, I found one that is my size. So I also grabbed it, and I found another one that is my size, also grabbed it. One of them was for five pounds, and the other one was for seven pounds. They were retailed about 70 pounds each. Then I went to the fitting room to try them on, and one of them was perfect fit, and the other one was a little bit too tight. But it was a steel. <laughs> so I did like whatever, <laughs> what any one of you would do, I bought it <laughs> and I took it home. And I kept on saying to myself, I can shed a few pounds and that will be, will be okay. But then I can walk around Beirut and I can tell people look, I got this brand new uh, uh, brand name uh, pair of slacks that is, I could brag about this price for 70 pounds, but I also, but I only bought it for five pounds. Um, it sat in my closet for about two years, <laughs> then I give it away to someone. We all love a good deal. we all experience that when you go and you find something valuable and then you, you and you find it either for free being given away or or you find it for a discounted price we We always brag about that and enjoy that, and we f- feel good about doing that and i 'm afraid sometimes we brought this m- Thinking and this logic to our relationship with God we like a discounted God let me give you a few examples of how we can do a discounted God we can think about him only on uh, twice a week on Wednesday for Bible study and on Sunday when we come to church that's a 70% discounted God the rest of the time is ours we do whatever we want Whatever we like, we pursue our own goals. Or, if you're on Sunday morning only person or a Sunday day only person, then you get a eighty-five um, percent discount on God. And then, um, now these days we hear preachers doing a free God at a hundred percent discount. Uh, God is love and. And he will let you do anything you want. He loves you and he, he, he is not wanting anything from you. So you can live your life the way you want. And God is love. And at the end of the day, love is going to win. And everybody is going to be saved. So go do whatever you want. Live your life the way you want. And God is love. So that's God at 100% discount. Now I want to make sure that you don't misunderstand me this morning. Nothing that I say this morning is meant to diminish what we believe about the gospel that is free salvation for all by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing that I want to say this morning could be misunderstood or should be misunderstood that I am teaching that we are going to do something in order to be saved. However, what I'm going to say and what we read in this passage, I think the more we understand God more, the more we appreciate the grace of God. The more we understand the depth of the love of God, the more we understand what he did for us. Now, the first attribute of God that is that gets discounted right away is the holiness of God, what we read about this morning. However, a bargain God, a discounted God cannot be our God. We cannot deconstruct Him and then reconstruct Him the way we want. We cannot divide Him. We cannot choose which parts of Him that suit our lifestyle, our aspirations, our temperaments. We are going to believe or we're going to hold dear and decide which Attributes of God we want to just do away with. We can't do that. Our view of God determines our relationship with Him. The priority of that relationship. Its volume, its length, its breadth, its height, its depth. It determines how we relate to God. A discounted God means our relationship with Him is also discounted. Our desires, our goals, our values take over His desires, His purposes, and His values. did we get used to a discounted God? When we look at the cross, and we sang about the cross this morning, we shouldn't only see the love of God, even though it exemplifies the love of God, it shows the love of God in its most glorious form. But we should also see the holiness of God because the cross shows us His his holiness in its also most glorious form. The fact that God saved us is because he loved us. The way he saved us is because of his holiness. He saved us through the cross because of his holiness. Isaiah, the most famous prophet of Israel, has faced God in this vision face to face and he came face to face with God's holiness. What does it mean for God to be holy? Isaiah 63 the passage we read it says holy 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 is the lord of hosts his glory his majestic splendor fills the entire earth that's the content of what this song says now in revelation 4:8 we hear the same song sang in heaven and here we see the content also of the song the same content but it tells us also the duration of the song it says day and night they never stop saying holy 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 is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come it never stops day and night holiness is so hard to define now exegetes uh, Bible theologians uh, systematic theologians uh, Bible professors uh, pastors have struggled all their lives in order to be able to define holiness and it's so hard to define simply because of the fact that there is nothing in this created fallen world that actually comes close to compare holiness to. There is nothing that we, in our experience that we can, we can relate holiness to and we can, we can we can say oh now we got it, now we understand it, now we, got, we wrapped our hands around it. There is nothing in our beings as a human being that comes even close because of our fallen nature. Somebody put it that way. If we take our best qualities, not just mine, all of ours, and not all of ours only, but all of humanity that's ever lived and is going to be lived, if we take the best qualities of those people, and and if we take the worst qualities of us, and we completely obliterate it from the depth of our souls, and we take the result and multiply it millions, thousands of millions of times, then we may get a glimpse of what God's holiness looks like. We may get that glimpse. What does it mean? We also understand that the biblical authors struggled with it as well. They they used it, but they associated it with other concepts in order to explain it for us. Holiness is associated with separateness, uniqueness. God is so separate, is so unique. There is nothing like him. There is nothing that can compare... To him, God's holiness is deeply associated with this uniqueness. That's his metaphysical uniqueness. That's his theological understanding of holiness. I was with my wife uh, in California before we came here. We went to Dallas and then back here. Um, And it was always my dream to drive on Highway 1. I was there before and I was trying to do it, but I missed my turn and I didn't have the time. I was heading to the airport, so it, it was gone. I'm glad I didn't because this time I was there with my wife and we had plenty of time. We have a whole day in front of us. So we decided to drop from Visalia near Fresno and we just dropped down to the coast that way uh, to Monterey and from Monterey we drove down on Highway 1 all the way to L.A. We stopped at every turn. Almost every place we could park our car we actually stopped. stopped. We stopped to enjoy the beauty and uniqueness of what we're looking at. Almost every turn we went, there was no place like the other. It was so unique. It was so beautiful. It was so majestic that we stopped and we took pictures and pictures and pictures. And at the end, we took a selfie on every turn. <laughs> okay, because that's my, my wife wanted that. She's here this morning. And... Uh, and then we drove, and it, 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 it sounded as if, and it felt as if we've been, we've been covering lots of grounds, and, and, and then I looked at my GPS, and here we got covered about 25 miles per hour because we were so taken by the beauty of what we're seeing, by the uniqueness of what we're seeing, and we're taking pictures. We're trying to get we get it. We, we, we want to take it with us and show it to everyone, the, the beauty and majestic uh, uniqueness of the places we were at. So this is God's holiness. God is so unique. He's so different. He stands in a category by himself. There is nothing else to compare him to. There is nothing else that comes close to compare him to. And look what we, what we read in Leviticus 10. Uh, it, it, it relates to God's holiness in a way of understanding what the term is. Leviticus 10 talks about holiness of things associated with God. And look what God through Moses tells Aaron the high priest. He says, you and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting or you will die. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. And hear carefully, listen carefully, and see the words, the word pairs he uses to define or how he understands holiness. So that you can distinguish between the holy and the common. See, the opposite of holy is not the sinful only, but also it is the... I almost spoke in Arabic here, not in tongues. Uh, uh, but, but it, it's, it's actually the common, what is profane, what is common, and the clean and the unclean. So he's telling Aaron that, that the opposite of holy is not just, the, uh, it's, it's what is being used for, for common things. for What is being used in, in the daily life of people is not to be used in the worship of God. So holiness means that separateness, that consecration. Of something to God. But what does it mean when we consecrate God. When when we talk about God as holy. God is consecrated to himself. If we want to apply the same logic. And we end up with this concept of uniqueness. He stands by a category on his own. There is nothing that compares to him. Exodus 15, 11, Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, work in wonders. 1 Samuel second uh, chapter and verse 2, Hannah's prayer. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. There's also a, 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 another concept associated with, with holiness, which is absolute purity. Absolute purity. There is no evil in God. He is not related or associated to any of the evil that is in this world. He does not share in sinful behavior, and He is never tempted to do so. Now we, we, we might not share sometimes in sinful behavior, but we're tempted to do so. But God is, does not share in it, and He's never ever tempted to do so. James chapter 1 verse 13, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. Habakkuk has a problem, had a problem with God. When God wanted to send the Babylonian sinful nation in order to to discipline his own people because of their sin, Habakkuk took took an issue with God. He said, God, how can you do that? Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent? Why do the wicked swallow up those who are more righteous than themselves? God couldn't agree more. He said, you're right, Habakkuk. I'm holy, I'm pure, my eyes cannot tolerate sin, I can't see all this. However, this judgment is going to be applied to Israel as a nation, and when I'm done with the rod of my discipline, I'm going to just break it. They're going to be disciplined as well, and they're going to be judged as well. God is not only pure, He cannot tolerate impurity but he also cannot tolerate imperfection. Now, the closest I can come to this is by this illustration, which is really not fitting to God. But I could not come up with anything that is, you know, from my experience that is similar. You now, some some of you guys are OCD people, right? Like me, I am OCD. Uh, I walk into a room. And if there's a nice painting on the wall, whether nice or not, doesn't matter, but if the painting is off, it's not leveled completely, it bugs me. I can't stand it. And um, I, I start inching my way towards that that painting and uh, pretending to admire it. And I put my hand on it and... Uh, Fix it, okay? Some of you are like that. Some of you are not. You're lucky if you're not. Uh, but um, I'm not saying that God is OCD. But I'm saying that God's mind is so perfect that anything that is imperfect catches attention. It bugs him. He cannot tolerate it. Not just imper, not just sinful, but imperfect. That's not medi- Anything that is mediocre. It doesn't go well with him. He's excellent. He's perfect. He thinks perfectly. He feels perfectly. He relates perfectly to the point where where things don't go the right way. Where, Where he looks at things that are not perfect. It just doesn't sit well with him. God is perfect. Being holy, that means perfect in holiness. Perfect in everything. Cannot tolerate evil. Cannot tolerate imperfection. Separate, unique by himself. Not only that, but it permeates all his being and everything else he does. His name is holy, his uh, person is holy, his words are holy. Um, Jeremiah had a problem with false prophets and because of God's words. And he he had a problem. And he said, said, let me read it. Uh, I'll I'll have more time uh, in this meeting than in the previous one. I'm cheating a little bit. Concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me. All my bones tremble. I am like a drunken man, like a strong man overcome by wine because of the Lord and of his holy words. Now he was not drunk by God's holy words. He was saying, I feel like that because because if you read the context, you know what the problem is. The false prophets have taken God's holy words and they messed them up, misapplied them. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord is in Jerusalem. The temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord. And they were telling everyone, don't worry, nothing is going to happen to the city because in this city there is the temple of the Lord. And God had said that this city is going to be overtaken and destroyed. But it didn't suit them. They didn't like it. So they made up their own God's word. Like today. Teachers, preachers take God's word and they just weed out whatever they don't like from it. Whatever does not and then should burn us on the inside. It should burn our souls as, as pastors and believers. As we, as we hear and listen to those pastors and preachers and teachers completely mess up God's word. We should burn us almost like a drunken man. His judgment is holy, his throne is holy, his temple is holy, his thoughts are pure and holy. And we should never get used to God's holiness. Do yourself a favor and never get used to God's holiness. The seraphim were sitting there. Now these are not your little baby angels with wings, you know, the baby with wings with a cuddly Little ones that you want to take home. No. We're talking about the the verb seraph in Hebrew means to burn. The seraphim are the burning ones. The ones that are aflame. They're so bright. They look like they're they're in flames. And those are scary things. Those are the things that if we meet one of them, we would want to run as far as we can, as fast as we can. Those are the... Angels in the presence of the Lord that Isaiah saw, and and they are shy. Uh, If not shy, they're afraid. They're covering their eyes with their wings, and they're covering their feet, and they don't want to look at him. Because because of his awesomeness, because of his presence, because of his holiness, because of his uniqueness, because he is so different. Uh, You're talking about angels that when one of them spoke, the, 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 the thresholds of the temple shook. And, and the house was filled with smoke. Uh, you're talking about awful creatures in, in, in a positive sense, of course. Holy, 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 three times. It's our equivalent in modern-day language of saying, wow, wow, wow. And if you, you don't need to say it more than three times because that's enough. To to convey the point that, oh, what I'm looking at is something that is absolutely tremendous, absolutely out of this world, absolutely different. When Moses stood before God, when he appeared in the burning bush in Exodus 3, 5 and 6, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Isaiah was so impacted by this vision that more than 30 times he uses in his... In his uh, prophecy and God, God gave him uh, uh, the reminders more than 30 times that I am holy. He uses the term the holy one of Israel or the holy one to refer to God. I'm afraid that if we were in Isaiah's place or in Moses' place, we would have probably thought that we could run and give God a hug. We are so familiar with his holiness we lost track of how awful he is in the sense, in the positive sense. Malachi warns us and from this passage we know that the people most at risk to take God's holiness slightly are his servants, his ministers, believers. Malachi chapter 2, and now you priests, this warning is for you. If you do not listen, and if you do not resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not resolved to honor me. And the question is why? What did they do? And God answers in chapter 1, and He says, uh, A son honors his father, and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, priests, who show contempt for my name. Then you ask how? It's by offering the imperfect animals on my altar. My name, then he goes on to say, will be great among the nations. We're talking about Gentiles. Will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings, pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. While the nations are fearing God and offering pure offerings to God, his own people, his own priests are treating his name with contempt when the Turkish uh, army took over a town in Syria called Afrin. I don't know if you followed the news. It was recent. We had a new flux, a little one, of refugees that came to Lebanon. One of them showed up in the church on a Friday, and I wasn't in the church. So he went and met with one of our elders. And um, he turned out to be one of the leaders from Afrin, from the uh, Kurdish leaders of Afrin. So he came to... um, Uh, to us and he had heard that we helped so he came and he was seeking help so uh, the elder that was meeting with him uh sat with him for about two hours sharing about christ sharing the gospel with him and he listened intently for two hours engaged in the discussion completely asking questions you know sometimes you're telling somebody about the lord but they don't ask any questions this is one sign say no no when are you going to stop but he was asking questions and he was interacting with what so he stayed he spent with him two hours And then at the end of this, uh, the elder asked him, said, uh, would you like to come and uh, worship with us on Sunday morning? So he said, yes. He showed up. He came to church. I didn't know who he was. There was somebody in the church. And that sermon that day was about the exclusiveness of Christ as the way to know God from John chapter 1. And after I finished preaching that sermon, I uh, was at the door shaking hands with the people as they're coming out. Uh, He came and he said, uh, um, I... uh, I liked your sermon today and I would like to come here again. Can I come next Sunday? That's the strangest thing to ask a pastor. Of course you can come next Sunday, you know. But that showed me that he's a person that doesn't know. So uh, I said, uh, where are you from? He said, I'm Afrin. And he said, okay, I'll, I'll talk to you afterwards. So he, uh, I, finished, I finished shaking hands and he came to me and he said, when you're preaching about God, you talk about him as if you know him. You talk about him in a way that will make me feel like I can relate to him. You talk about his love, about his sacrifice, about his care about us. You, you talk about the cross. You talk about the forgiveness of sins. You talk about loving the enemies. You talk about all these things that are so strange to us. We go on Friday... To learn about God and what we learn is how to kill and how to do uh, the bad things and how to curse and how to do uh, what we need to do in order to survive and all these kind of things. He said, you are different. Can I come next Sunday? I said, of course you can come next Sunday. Now during the week he brought his daughter back to the same elder and she sat with him and her, uh, uh, with both of them and the elder shared Christ with the daughter. Now she's in her late twenties with a little baby in her hand. And uh, at the end, uh, she interrupted him. She said, I want to become a Christian. I said, wait, wait, <laughs> you, you probably don't understand what I'm trying to tell you. This is not just, you know, a simple, uh, uh, I want to become a Christian. There, there, there's a change. There's a change in convictions and faith and belief. And, and there, There's a deeper thing here that you, you understand. Uh, she, so she stopped me, She said, I understand. I understand. I understand. The implications of all this. He said, do you believe in Jesus Christ as the only Savior, as God incarnate? And she said, yes. Do you believe He can save you? Yes. Do you believe that you're a sinner? Yes. Do you want to ask Him to forgive your sins and to become your Savior? Yes. And right there, she asked the Lord into her life. They came back next Sunday. He came back with His daughter and she was sitting with Him. And the sermon next Sunday was about the change that God, the, 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 the new birth it changes us on the inside. And, and I could see her going, yes, yes. I didn't know that she had accepted the Lord on Friday on, or during the week. And she was going like this with a smile on her face. And she came and she said, I not only just understand what you're saying, but I know it happened to me. It happened to me last week. So they're coming from the nations. Those that have not been brought up in the church, they haven't heard about Christ. They have not been brought up in our Sunday school. They're they're not the people that have learned about him all their life. They come and they are struck by the awe of what God is and what he has done for us and then they come to him similar to what Jesus said to the Jews. They're going to come from the east and the west and the sons of the kingdom are going to be left out. We have lost that full or not full, but at least adequate understanding of God's holiness and what he's done for us on the cross. We became too familiar with his holiness. God's holiness drives us into worship. What does it mean for us if God is holy? First, it means that God is the most valuable being in all existence. There is nothing like Him. There is nothing more valuable than He is. There is nothing more valuable than what we do for Him. He is unchangeable. His value is going to remain the same. Does not change from eternity to eternity. He is the same. He can't change for the better because that means He was not perfect. He can't change for the worse because that means He is no longer perfect. He can't change. God will never change and His value will never be diminished. There's nothing that we do in this life. There is nothing that we do in this life if we take all the riches of this world and put them all in one scale and all the energy, of course, and put it also on one side of the scale and we put God on the other side, the scales will not even move. He is so perfect and valuable and He is valuable than anything else. Second, God's perfection and holiness is the standard of all our moral values. They are rooted in his nature. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And it's most likely related to Leviticus 11. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourself and be holy because I am holy. Now, if you take Isaiah's vision understand, holy, holy, holy means to the exponential degree and we are to become holy as he is holy. We are to become perfect as he. you can. You can see where our problem is. You can immediately see, oh my goodness. Does he expect me to be like him? Does he expect me to be like that? That perfect? That holy? And Isaiah fully understood that. Immediately he understood that. When he saw God and he, and he heard that song being sang and he saw his holiness and, and he was struck by, uh, he was struck by how, how holy God is, the first thing he did is just looked inside to see himself. Where do, he, where do I stand? How, how do I compare? What, is my, what, is, what will happen to me? Because I saw this. And then he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. The feeling of guilt and sinfulness before God is the correct reaction to His holiness and to our own depravity and sinfulness. You should try it sometime, but I'm I'm sure you already did. Um, You do something wrong, you do something sinful, and you're sharing that feeling of guilt with somebody else. And the first reaction of people around you would say, No, don't worry about it. It's okay, you're not, like, but you're not like that. And they're, they're trying to justify, and you're trying to justify to yourself the sins that you've done, and you're trying to take the guilt away by justifying your own sin. That's not what Isaiah did. It was proper. It was fitting for him in front of the of, of the wholeness of God, in his presence, to feel his own guilt and to feel his own sinfulness, and to understand that he is ruined. He is ruined. There is no hope for him. He understood, he understood that clearly and we should understand that clearly. We, we, don't, we don't want to offend other people by telling them what you've done is wrong and we don't want to offend ourselves by telling ourselves that what you've done is, is wrong. Well, Isaiah was willing to, to be offended by himself. And he said, I'm offended. What I see is not right. What I see is, is, is a ruin, is a problem, is a sin. And He's looked inside and he said, I don't like what I see. I know what that means. That means I have, there's no hope for me and I'm ruined. Face to face before God. And that's when redemption occurs. A seraphim flew, took a coal from the altar, touched his lips, and he said, your sin is forgiven, is atoned for. That's why we have an altar, that's why we have the cross. That's why we, when we fully understand that we cannot justify ourselves before God, we cannot justify ourselves to ourselves, we cannot justify ourselves to others, and in front of God, we can never be justified except through the cross of Christ. Then we fully understand the holiness of God and the redemption that He's done, the atonement He's done in the cross. Then we understand the value of what God has done for us. And the fourth thing, God's standard and commandments will not change. God is holy and perfect and His his standard and His values and His commandments will never change. The day will never come when God is going to repent and say, Oh my goodness, I was too harsh on them. Let me fix this by changing the commandment. He is never going to do that. (laughs) Our late Professor Howard Hendricks used to put it that way. As we were students in his classroom, he would stand and say, Folks, that's the word that he used, folks. God has spoken. He did not stutter. He knows what he wants. He knows what he said. He exactly knows what he said and we should listen to what he says and we should accept what he says, even if we, whether we like it or not. He's not waiting for pastors and exegetes and theologians and people to, to re. Uh, uh, reinterpret his word to to fix it in a way that will be nice and easy and 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 uh, everybody's going to be happy and accepting. No, 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 no. He's not waiting for that. He's not even waiting for the CNN to do a poll to tell us what is right and what is wrong, or n- any other creature on the face of the earth. His holiness, his goodness, is rooted in himself. Now. Oh. In Arabic, we distinguish between the word holy, and we use different words for holy when we apply it to God, is different than when we apply it to other things. Um, God is holy. Quddus, that's what we use, the word we use. When we're talking about man as being holy, we don't say Quddus, we say Quddis. We change it, we change the vowels. And if you want to say about something that is holy, we use neither of them. We use the word mqaddas. It's almost like a holy, healy, mhali, mhali, mhali in English. So we, we distinguish them because we want to make sure we understand in our language that, uh, that God's holiness is, is, is intrinsic to himself. We, we, we become holy. We are sanctified. But his holiness is so intrinsic to himself and his, and his commandments are so intrinsic to his goodness and perfection to a point that they will never change. He's not waiting to hear from us whether we agree or not. God's holiness also extends to all things and people related to him. And there's nobody more related to God in this universe more than you and I. His own people. We, in fact we are so related to him that he lives in us through the Holy Spirit we are his temple. Now I know you've been learning about the tabernacle and, and the most holy place, place in the tabernacle is the inside, the very inside room. It's called the holy of holies. And holiness becomes like, it's, it's kind of like disperses as you move outwards from that holy of holy. Now we flip that around. We pretend holiness on the outside and the inside is filthy and dirty and sinful. And we think we're Okay. I say that and I say it with trembling heart. Because the Holy Spirit lives in each one of us, in me, then every sin, every word, every thought, that is sinful and displeasing to God, we have done it, we have spoken it in the very presence of God. This very presence that we read about this morning. Can you imagine Isaiah sitting there looking at God's holiness and looking at all this and he's thinking sinful, sinful things? Oh, how, how can I get back to that one? How can I kill somebody? How can I cheat? How can I, how can I do that? No, he, he, he cannot even do it because he was so taken by the holiness of God, he was not used to it. He didn't get used to it. We're always in the presence of God. He lives in us and therefore we have to live a life as if we're always right there where Isaiah stood, 750 B.C., before Christ. No revival is ever going to happen unless we seriously understand and accept the holiness of God. No victory over sin, no power of the gospel, no filling of the Holy Spirit, no understanding of the Word of God is to be expected if we reject what we already know about God, that he's holy. We're not going to do that. The holiness of God makes the gospel more glorious and absolutely necessary. The holiness of God makes the gospel more glorious and absolutely necessary. Because we know the minute we hear that holy, 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 and we fully grasp what his holiness is all about, then we realize suddenly that there is nothing we can do in order to match that holiness and please him. Therefore, we need the cross. We need the Lord. We need Jesus. We will never serve him like Isaiah did unless we understand his holiness. Isaiah volunteered to serve him right after this vision. And the gospel I mean, I'm sorry, the message that Isaiah was asked to carry, the burden that Isaiah was asked to carry I can tell you, I do not want to carry. It was a message of judgment and no redemption. And if you continue reading that passage that we just began to read this morning in chapter 6, you understand there was no. Redemption, except till after the judgment. No one wants to carry that. No preacher wants to stand in front of a congregation or a church or a country and say, God is judging us. And there is no room for repentance. Isaiah carried that message and prophets after him because they have fully understood understood who God is therefore at the end instead of living our life our lives in the shadow of our own fake pretended holiness i pray that we would ask god for an isaiah experience that will push us to live our lives in the light of his holiness it's there It's open. Ask God, say, Lord, help me each day to live in the light of your holiness and not in the shadow of my pretended perfection and holiness.